0: Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Full Comment. I'm Anthony Fury. Don't forget to subscribe to this show to learn when new episodes are posted. I'd like to start today's show with throwing out a few provocative phrases. World War III. A new Cold War. Cyber warfare. Amphibious land invasion. Uh-oh, Fury's been reading the Tom Clancy again. Well, no, that's that's actually not it. I've been reading essays and journals like, like Foreign Affairs magazine, top journals, Articles by very prominent people. And those phrases that I just said, well, they are increasingly appearing in that type of work, at least when it comes to the issue of the South China Sea, what's going on there in that area right now concerning China and Taiwan. Our guest today is Professor Scott Simon. He's co-chair of Taiwan Studies at the University of Ottawa, and he lived in the island nation of 25 million people for 10 years. He joins us now to break down this whole issue for us. Professor, welcome to the podcast.
1: Good. Thank you for inviting me today.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for coming by, Scott. And, and, you know, right when I just, in saying that introduction there, I said, island nation, that's how I described Taiwan. I thought, uh-oh, you know, if Xi Jinping's listening on his Huawei device right now, I've, I've already upset them. You know, they, <laughs> even just by describing Taiwan as its own country, sometimes uh, you ruffle some feathers.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's in fact what is, well, that's the fact, you know, Taiwan is an independent sovereign country. Its official name is the Republic of China ever since uh, 1952. Um, But it's never been ruled by the People's Republic of China. Uh, Xi Jinping has nothing to do with Taiwan, and so it is definitely an independent country.
0: And yet we're in a situation right now where, you know, to your point, they've got their own currency. They have a national anthem. They have a president that's elected, and she was Mm reelected just the other year. And yet Mm -hmm. you go to the United Nations and you, you know, you follow, I guess, their alphabetical order, and you get to T... Oh, no Taiwan. And you get to this other international body. They're not there. And sometimes when you're even at an airport and it's telling you where it's landing and so forth and the flight says it's going to Taipei, but it doesn't always even say Taiwan. Somehow it just says China. And you go, what on earth is going on? How can that be, Scott?
1: Well, you know, if you look at the Air Canada website and buy your ticket, it's going to say Taipei province of China. And what's going on is that China has for a very long time been putting pressure on the world to pretend that Taiwan is already part of China. And they hope that they kind of twist everybody's arms and so that if there is a conflict, people will just stand by and be confused.
0: Right, so to bring yeah. it back to basics though, mm-hmm. why is this even happening in the first place? This typically does not happen where one country tries to convince the rest of the world that another country is just a part of them. Where did this come from? What are the origins of it?
1: Well. You know, where did this come from is that Taiwan used to be part of Japan. And then after World War II, there was a treaty called the San Francisco Peace Treaty in 1952. That's why I just said 1952 just now. In Canada, there was a party to this and the different countries that were in this peace negotiation about Japan. Japan was not there had some disagreements about what would happen to Taiwan. And so Canada said, well, why don't we just not say anything? And so at that time, the People's Republic of China had already been been in existence for three years. Chiang Kai-shek with his Republic of China had already been on Taiwan for seven years. They were occupying it on behalf of the allies with whom they fought in World War II. And so what happened then is japan subsequently signed a treaty with the republic of china and so that along with the us getting involved in the militarily in the taiwan straits in the beginning of the 50s kept taiwan as an independent country but it never was part of china and china has ever since then had it as their goal to someday absorb taiwan or annex taiwan into its
0: own territory and so, where I come off using these phrases like World War III and all of that, and, and while you're hearing more people talk about those possibilities, and there's a great novel out, or well, maybe not a great novel, a tragic novel called 2034, where a head of uh, the Amer- former head of the American Navy, an admiral there, talking about how a conflict could materialize there, all that comes from is the use of the phrase reunification and how Xi Jinping says, All right, we got Hong Kong, we got Tibet, we got Taiwan, they're all a part of China proper. And China's, China's destiny, its dignity is not going to be whole until we get all these guys back in the family.
1: Well, basically, every time we use that word reunification, we're falling into that trap because we're using the words that they want us to use. So we should be very honest about hmm. this. Okay. China wants to annex Taiwan. Right. And it's every bit as absurd as if the United States wanted to take Newfoundland. It's just unacceptable. And we have to be honest about that which many times the world has not been honest about. And I can see where companies might be able to fall to pressure. You know, Air Canada, what would happen if they turned down China?
0: Right. You know, and I I, I guess the challenge with all of this, you go, Fury, why are you using the phrase amphibious invasion? Well, because we learned in recent news reports that China's actually bragged about the fact that in a province just across the Taiwan Strait, Mm -hmm. which is that small body of water that separates Mm -hmm. the island of Taiwan from mainland China, that they've said, well, we've actually been practicing amphibious invasions. We've been practicing land invasions. Uh I go, well, hold on a second. That's like, you know, that's what Hitler was talking about doing across the English Channel. Or of course, you know, this Uh the scenes in Dunkirk and so forth. You're like, China's actually talking about prepping doing that sort of stuff that's
1: right i think we have to face the fact that the china that we see in the world right now is a china which is very similar to what hitler's germany was at one time and they uh don't have gas chambers but they do have some very serious uh uh, types of concentration camps or uh, detention camps with the uyghur and they are planning some kind of an attack if necessary on taiwan they are sending out signs um they just sent um some naval ships with russia 10 ships in total through uh straits belonging to uh japan uh, to show that they have the military force they're preparing for this amphibious landing they sent over 150 airplanes military planes into taiwan's air defense identification zone in october alone uh most of them in the first four days so they're sending a lot of signs now a lot of signs doesn't mean that world war three is imminent but what it means is that there's a possibility and i think that the world has to really unify and do what it can not just to deter war but to prevent it and make it unthinkable. so we have to make it clear to China that the costs are very high.
0: Scott, you you surprised me a little bit, though, with the invocation of Hitler, because, you know, I've heard a lot of people say some really strong-worded stuff about Xi Jinping and and everything going on in that region. And I know you're someone who's, you you know, you teach on this issue, you study on it, you've reflected on it a lot. I mean, I haven't heard anybody really make that invocation yet. Uh, But, but, you know, you're certainly unapologetically laying out the case.
1: Well, you know, people are afraid to go down that path. But I I, I think quite a bit about the Sudetenland when uh, Chamberlain went and negotiated with Hitler for a piece of territory, saying that we're going to have peace in our time. We're going to let them have this little piece of the the Czech territory and then we'll be fine. And I, I think that there are some leaders in the world who believe that by letting China have their way with Taiwan, that they can avoid war. But what happened after Hitler took to the Sudetenland is he turned on the rest of Europe. And I think that should be a warning for us. And that's through the spirit in which I'm saying that we must be very open eyed about the dangers in front of us and realize that if we negotiate away Taiwan or let Taiwan become part of China, then the risk is even higher that China will go elsewhere. And we have to be serious about the fact that China also claims part of Japan and they claim part of India. And they claim the whole South China Sea.
0: Well, hold on a second. They claim part of India?
1: They claim part of India. They claim the entire state of Arunachal Pradesh, which has one million people, all of whom are citizens of the Republic of India.
0: How serious are they with these claims?
1: Well, they're right now amassing troops on the border of India. So when you say World War Three. I would like to say that's nonsense, but if they're amassing troops on the border with India and they're threatening Taiwan and they're using gray zone tactics against Japan and they're allying themselves with Russia, as we just saw between Honshu and Hokkaido, it looks like this is not it's not imminent. We're talking we're not talking about the next two years. But it does show that there is a threat on the horizon.
0: What does Prime Minister Narendra Modi have to say about these incursions? Well, I appreciate they're not incursions no. yet, although I know there have been a couple weird conflicts yeah. between a few soldiers here and there. But what does he have to say about those claims well, on the amassing of troops?
1: They've never accepted those claims, and they are amassing troops on their side of the border, too. And there was a conflict. Um, some, some Actually, the soldiers got into a fight, and some people mm. got some people get killed. And... So that is also a serious issue to take to, to take a close look at.
0: I guess the question is, in what way do we need to be prepared for this? Because there's so many people who I think are unaware of oh. the severity of the situation. You, you yeah. know, there are times when I'll, I'll be writing my columns or I'll be on this podcast or the radio programs and people write back, and they just say, like, oh, well, you know, why do you hate China? And, you know, it's such a great country. people are so great. You know, my community. man. I'm like, whoa, whoa, that is not what we're talking about at all here. I and mean, we're talking right. about the geopolitics of the authoritarian communist regime of Xi Jinping yeah. and their motivations mm-hmm. that, to your point, they have clearly articulated. Yeah. And I think a lot yeah. of people aren't even there at the 101 basics, let alone right. the whole, what are we going to do about, you know, okay, yes, talk about Taiwan. What are we even going to do about the India situation, which you know is clearly something that can mount as well? I mean, I think there's such a gulf between uh, what's really going on mm-hmm. and and I, I guess Western awareness and urgency, mm-hmm. at least in the general public. I know that the right. you know the, the White House is concerned about the South China Sea, but the general public perceptions.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think the general public needs to get on board with this because we're going to have to uh, raise our budget for the military. Here in Canada. And that's going to happen around the world. Japan has just announced they're going to raise theirs. They, they tend to peg it to GDP. And so they've decided to raise it from 2% of GDP to 4%. And I think that's a move that Canada should do. And we do need to enforce our, our naval abilities anyway. We really should be reinforcing the Arctic and buying those submarines. And so we do need to be prepared. And that is also a way of deterring war by by showing by showing China and other rogue states because China's not the only one that the world is united, then even a relatively small military like Canada's has a voice and has has a place at the table and can really be supportive and make a difference.
0: Now, Scott, one of the reasons we're talking now is that, the the rhetoric has really been mm-hmm. ratcheted up from Xi Jinping mm-hmm. in terms of, yeah. I know you said don't use the phrase reunification, but that's the phrase he's using. Rhetoric has mm-hmm. really gone up. He said mm-hmm. this is inevitable. Now, mm-hmm. one doesn't know the timeline that he's thinking of, but we know they're talking about uh, practicing the invasions. And we know uh, something something we haven't discussed as well yet. There's been well over 100 uh, incursions into their airspace recently Uh, into Taiwan's airspace, they've got bombers, fighter jets from China's People's Liberation Army uh, really buzzing into Taiwan's airspace. And that's a thing that really has not been happening uh, to the extent and volume it's happening right now in pretty much ever.
1: Well, I I think we have to kind of step back there because they haven't been going into Taiwan's airspace. It's a a technical difference here, but it's a very important technical difference. Right. Yeah. Please please explain it. Yeah. They're going into Taiwan's air defense identification zone and what that is it's a it's a much larger zone in which any aircraft entering that has to identify themselves and what they're doing and then taiwan can chase them out if if necessary which is what's happening with these military jets going into it so so far the rhetoric is has been notched up in china and there have been more military uh excursions into the um ADIZ but they have not crossed the median of the Taiwan Strait so the halfway point between China and Taiwan mm-hmm. and they've not gone over Taiwan territory and so they, they kind of know where their limits are right now and because of that we can't even be a hundred percent sure that these military flights are aimed only at Taiwan And so there, but most of them are going southwest of Taiwan, so between Taiwan and the Philippines. And you know, some of it could be for consumption within China, saying, "Look, we're doing something about all of these issues." Um, The ones around the beginning of the month of October might because might be because Japan and the United States and Canada and uh, several other countries were doing some military exercises in that part of the world, and to show them that we're here too. Um, It could just be practice. Uh, But it's also practice for Taiwan, because every time this happens, Taiwan scrambles their jets and gets Mm. rid of the the ones from China. And so they're getting their practice, and they're getting to understand how these uh, Chinese jets work. And so it's also good for their military intelligence as well.
0: Now, I understand the United States, while not officially recognizing Taiwan as as a country in terms of formal diplomatic relations uh-huh. and, and not pushing for them to have a seat at the United Nations, uh-huh. they do have a collaboration with them in terms of selling arms to them. And as we actually just learned the other week, which I'm sure ruffled feathers with China, US Special Forces commanders have been on the ground helping Taiwanese military officials and, and commanders prepare for, for whatever may come their way.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the, the, we're talking about the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act. And through that, without having official diplomatic relations with Taiwan, the United States has been very supportive of Taiwan. And in recent years, because of the greater threat from China, it has nothing to do with who's in the White House, but it's because of the actual threat coming from China. Um, They've increased sales of weapons to Taiwan, and they have been training special forces. But I, I have a feeling that those training Things have been going on for at least twenty years, and I say right. that because when I was working out in the gym as a grad student in the nineteen nineties, there were Taiwanese military people, young guys, you know, telling me that they'd been working out, that they'd been working recently with American military forces.
0: So something that's been a long-standing issue going on. Yeah. Will these ties deepen right now?
1: Well, the ties are there and i think that well i know the united states policy is to encourage all like-minded countries to help them support taiwan and the number one thing that they want other countries to do is support giving taiwan some international space right and they're willing to do all of the diplomatic nicety with china the the you know the goal is to encourage china to become a good player in the international rules-based system and so they're willing to make some compromises in the way they talk about things publicly but they want the world to support taiwan having a some kind of meaningful participation at the united nations and international organizations like the uh, international civil aviation organization the world health assembly and so forth and and that's a way of showing china that the world supports taiwan and will not accept annexation
0: right and I know one of the requests that Taiwan has of Canada right now, and has it of many countries, is that they would like to be signatories, members to the new Pacific Trade Deal, the whatever it's called now, CPTPP. China is yeah. applying to it as well. Taiwan is, I guess, return fire and said we're applying to it as well, and uh-huh. they're asking Canada to support their submission. I think that's a very modest request, and is that not something that Canada can get behind?
1: It's a very modest request, and like I said, the world is like very willing to accommodate China and the way they talk about Taiwan publicly. And so that's why even Taiwan does that. They've applied to join as the customs area of Taiwan, the Pescadores, Mazu, and Jinman. Hmm. And saying that they're a customs entity rather than a country is their way of signaling to the world that they don't want to make trouble. They just want to have a place in the world very practical issues where they can help out and trade is one of them we you know we get most of our electronic goods and computers and cell phones and pretty much all of our semiconductor chips that are in all of those things come from taiwan
0: what do the people of taiwan want how do they see themselves in relationship to china one thing i found very interesting when i visited taiwan going to their national museum is a is a very interesting experience because um, as, as you know much more than I do, when Chiang Kai-shek and, and his government would have fled the mainland and gone to Taiwan, they took a lot of the the national treasures of China with yeah. them, and the main mm-hmm. museum in Taipei has so much of, of, of the heritage of mm-hmm. China, so all of yeah. the tourists actually in that, in that museum are people from mainland China coming to see their own heritage and culture in a Taiwanese museum, so I mean, yeah. these people are very inextricably linked.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, there's a very diverse population in Taiwan. Um, at the end of the World War II, there were six million people living there. And then another one to two million people came as refugees from China because they were fleeing communism. And so I, I and then, of course, they're they're indigenous people, too. There are about uh, 600,000 indigenous people. Right. And they all have different ways of thinking about their relationship with China. But I think that the one thing that they all have in common is they don't want to be part of the People's Republic of China. They don't want to be under communist rule. And if you look at the, the surveys, because they do surveys um, at National Sunset University in Taipei all the time, and consistently, since they started doing these surveys in the 90s, the percentage of people who want to be part of the People's Republic of China is about 2%. And That's the majority large. of the people say they want to keep the status quo. And that's because they're afraid if they say they want independence, then China will attack.
0: Isn't that crazy though, for a country that is pretty much already an independent country, anthem Mm -hmm. currency, all that stuff, democratic elections, for a country to dare to say, we want independence, oh, we're gonna bomb you. I mean, that's not, that's kind of reverse psychology.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's completely unacceptable. And in, in some ways, you know the United States tries to marginalize Cuba, but they've never said they're going to take it over. Good point. And
0: that's so, a really good comparison point yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a comparison I make quite a bit because what it is is that the u s tries to mar- tried to marginalize Cuba, and you know it's had the you know the the economic blockade and it also tries to you know twist the arm of air Canada and other companies and so forth. And Canada's refused as much as possible to go along with that. And so I think the comparison is very good, because if we can say no to the United States from time to time, I think we have to learn to say no to the Chinese from time to time as well.
0: One of the things when I think about Taiwan, and I thought this in my visit there, is, you know, and some people in Canada may say, okay, well, this is a conflict on the other side of the world. And why should I care? And how does it matter to me? And you mentioned the phrase earlier, Scott, of of like-minded nations. And when I was in Taiwan, even though... It's geographically a very different country and, of course, a different language and uh-huh. various different cultural aspects. I felt like there was a lot of similarities and a lot of affinity between Canada and Taiwan in terms of, I don't know, just who we are as sort of uh-huh. middle class values and, and our democratic systems. I, I just felt there, there was kind of a natural kinship. I mean, more similarities yeah. than differences.
1: Well, you know, Canada and Taiwan share in common being relatively small, not an area size for Canada, but being relatively small countries, next to bigger countries um, that often are, you know, have some hegemonic influence over them in many ways. And they're very proud of the things that they have. And the things that we have are very much in common. So LGBT rights, indigenous rights, healthcare. You know, the, Taiwan has universal healthcare, which China doesn't have. And they basically came to Canada, then learned what we do here. And then they improved upon it and instituted that in Taiwan. And so we have quite a bit of, common, of things in common with them. That you know, we're, we're liberal democracies. We have a very strong respect for human rights. Uh, we've got our charter; they've got their laws too. And and so there is an affinity that I think people who haven't been there find maybe difficult to imagine, but. We are part of one democratic world, and we do have an external threat that we have to face together.
0: One of the uncomfortable questions I hear a lot of people ask when it comes to Taiwan and the defense of Taiwan is, is it worth it? They ask, is it worth it for Xi Jinping to, to do an invasion, to do a quote-unquote reunification? And of course, there's debate and disagreement about how serious he is for that. But then there's also the question of, is it actually worth it for the United States to come to Taiwan's defense, and would they actually do it?
1: Well, that's two questions. Is it worth it to China? And I would say no. And the reason is that Taiwan has been investing billions of dollars into into China. And that's why China's become so wealthy. So why why kill the chicken that's, that's laying the golden eggs? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's really not worth it to China. And that's why I think that the actual threat of a war or an invasion is far down the road because I don't think it's really in China's best interest to to start a war. I think that a lot of that is rhetoric for internal consumption, and part of the psychological warfare towards Taiwan because they want to have some kind of an annexation by peaceful means.
0: But but hold on, it's interesting you say far down the road, and I I hear those similar sort of phrases from others, and you're not saying it's gonna fade away, or "Eh, it's a thing that's not serious. You say it's far down the road. So there's still an acknowledgement that it is a very viable thing. It's just whether right. it's immediate or not. It's it's just whether right. you know you and I are going to be doing the fighting or whether my kids are going to be doing the fighting.
1: Yeah. It, well, actually, I think that we might be alive when it happens. Unless, And this is why we have to keep the urgency there. Because there is a possibility. I don't think it's going to happen in the next two, three, maybe five years. But if the world gives signs of weakness to China, then there's a greater possibility of war. And you just asked the other question, what does it mean to us? And I can answer that one. This basically is the center of the world economy. It's where we get our semiconductors from. I think everybody likes their cell phones and their computers and their iPads and so forth. There are 60,000 Canadians living in Taiwan that would have to be evacuated. There are some 200,000 Taiwanese living in Canada, and so there'd be a refugee crisis with all of their relatives coming. And China would no longer be a place where we can go and do business. So the cost of a war is very high for us.
0: Is China and, currently a place where we can actually viably go and do business?
1: Well, right now it's closed to COVID, so it's difficult. But you know what I'm trying to say is that the cost of war is so high that we have to do everything we can to do. Even if it costs more and we have to raise our military budgets to prevent war. Don't let it happen in the first place, because preventing a war is expensive, but it's even more expensive to have a war. I don't. And think... the most expensive also to lose one. So we we have yeah. to invest in this.
0: But you no, know, and I I take your point. I don't think we have the public appetite in Canada to do that. I think we learn the lessons before they're too late, and I think we also well, we clearly have this sort of administrative bureaucratic mess where we can't get a few fighter jets made we can't do uh, naval resupply Mm -hmm. vessels in a Mm -hmm. timely way i ask with zero degree of of uh, it's it would be treated as a naive question i don't think Mm -hmm. it should be when are we getting an aircraft carrier here in canada but that's just Mm -hmm. not anything that's on the horizon
1: yeah well you know i have great uncles who fought in world war one and world war two with canada and Canada was a very important military player in the world. And I would like to see Canada get back to that. We had an
0: aircraft carrier.
1: Yeah. It's in our best interest to show to the world that we're serious. And, you know, if Australia can do it, which is a country of about a similar size economically and in terms you know, it's smaller actually in terms of population, then then that's if Australia can do it, we can do it. And so I think we really should be learning from them and doing our best to come back to the world, as so many of our leaders have said they want to do, saying Canada's back. Well, if Canada's back, we didn't we need an aircraft carrier. We need nuclear submarines. We need to have regular patrols of of up and down the Taiwan Strait.
0: Talk to me about that a bit, because we had a news report just the other week that, yes, we had vessels from Canada and the United States doing transits in the Taiwan Strait. And those mm-hmm. news articles are cropping up, I don't know, once every six months, something like that. We'll maybe have one ship uh, followed by a resupply ship that go through the Taiwan Strait. Uh-huh. And then they will say, oh, we're not doing it deliberately. It's just it's the shortest distance from point A to point B and so forth, yeah. which is totally within the rules of you know freedom of navigation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're saying, great, let's do that a bit more.
1: Uh, that's all right the united states goes through once a month i'm saying maybe we should go with them once a year you know they're uh the u.s is has got 10 times our population so maybe they go once every 10 every month and we go once every 10 months
0: that novel i Something referenced like 2034 how uh-huh. admiral stavridis conceptualizes world war Three beginning is of course a mistake and an error that happens and Mm -hmm. then a misjudgment of the intentions of other countries Mm -hmm. and that's so often the case in studies of war it's not actually the you know the first volley is not always an intentional uh target Mm -hmm. but people mis mis Mm miscommunicating are you concerned about open channels of communication misinterpreting intentions of different actors Mm -hmm. in the south china sea right now
1: yeah i absolutely am and that's why i think that in addition to military preparations we need to have our diplomats on the ground. We have to be in communication with China. It's in our best interest to work with China in multilateral places where we can cooperate with them on things like climate change and build trust on other issues and keep the lines of communication open. And that's, of course, again, it's not Canada alone. It's the whole world. But we should be engaging with China as much as we can. There are lots of Chinese people who think like we do on these issues. We don't know how many, but there are many, many, many Chinese people who want to have the same rights and freedoms that we have. And so they're just waiting for some change to happen. And so I I think basically it's a question of which is going to come first, some kind of an accident that causes World War III, or maybe some kind of an internal change within China. And Chinese people have been dreaming about that for a long time.
0: I saw a social media post from Margaret McQuaig Johnson a while ago. Mm. She was a very senior government official in Canada for many years, and she's got a lot of experience working on the China file. She's now working uh, in the academy. Uh A lot of people pay attention to what she has to say about China. And uh, I I couldn't find the tweet, so I won't direct quote, but basically she said, I've been to China, whatever, 20 times over the past few Mm -hmm. decades. I'm not going anymore. And I've heard Uh that from some other business figures, some other uh, academics. What is your sense... Post the release of the two Michaels about the safety of Canadians visiting China for business, visiting for leisure.
1: Well, you know, I, I've spent two years in China. I lived for two years in, in 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 Zhejiang province of China. I've I was traveling regularly to China until 2013, and I would say that for the most part, it's safe for most people to go to China. But that being said, we China still has under detention a Canadian of Uyghur origin. And I understand that there are over a hundred Canadians who've got citizenships, but they're of Chinese origin who are detained. And if you look at global affairs at the U.S. State Department warnings about China, they often warn about uh, exit bans. And this can happen Mm. if there's some kind of a, and this is what business people should be concerned about. If there's some kind of a conflict, and business you know business can lead to some conflicts and some somebody powerful takes it to the authorities they can actually put an exit ban on somebody so they can't leave china until the court case is over
0: so how would that happen like you're you're there on business and then somebody makes a claim that doesn't necessarily need to be accurate because we know that happens there just to mess with you and whatever business dealings you're doing there they know you're you're selling dodgy goods here you scam me in a Mm deal or what have you and then that that freezes you
1: so yes, that's right. There are there is that risk of that happening, and so I would say that compared to many other countries, China has higher risks to to business people, and you know even even to even to students and university professors. I think that the risk is slightly higher in China than it is elsewhere. And you know the world is a big place. So if I were doing business, you know, I I, I think that I would. Not make China my my preferred market because of the risks.
0: We hear from a lot of observers though that things are not as rosy for Xi Jinping as he would like the rest of the world to think. It's really difficult to keep a massive uh, massive government operation like China, uh, you know, under one's direction and managing all the standing committees and the Politburo. What's going on right now internally? in the upper brass in china are things good and is xi jinping leader for life or are things starting to crack
1: you know we, we can't really tell what's going on from here we have really no way to know for sure but i actually think that the strident tone about taiwan is a sign of weakness and that's another reason why i don't think the world war Three is imminent although we do have to take it serious i i, I think that it's a sign that he's trying to whip up support within China with this kind of nationalism and with emotions about something that a goal that's probably unattainable, but it's something that can unite people or he imagines it can't, we don't really know about that. And so I think it's a sign that things are not going well. And I know that a lot of Chinese people are concerned about the possibility that this system could end in a rather dramatic and difficult way
0: they have had rather dramatic and difficult times not too long ago in their history of course with the cultural revolution yeah. and the the not so great leap forward they're currently yeah. in a situation where they're really churning out new millionaires every day new billionaires as well yeah. for people who are i guess playing by the rules and know how to navigate that communist system it's actually been uh, rather you know non-communist in terms of how beneficial it's been for them and it's it's really working out for a whole lot of people But then you also get signs it's not working out for a whole lot of people as well. What are the underlying tensions right now in terms of managing the stability of this very large country of a billion people?
1: Well, you know, I think a lot of attention is being paid in the West to the big consumer market, the emerging middle class. There's still a huge population, over half the population living in poverty um not having the kind of high school education that we take for granted right um and so a lot of the a lot of inequality is there and so there's a, a real serious there's a series of you know there are problems with housing there are um problems with health care because a lot of people don't have access to health care and so there's a real possibility of unrest due to inequalities in china and i i think that a lot of Chinese people are concerned about the possibility that not even talking about Taiwan, but China could break up. And that's because they've gone through periods of Taiwan, of, time, of history when, when China was what they call the warlord periods, when there were warlords in charge of different parcels of land and they were not one united country. And they're kind of afraid of, of that kind of chaos
0: what are the specific action items on the table right now that canadians need to be aware of and that canadian officials if you were advising the prime minister right now or the foreign affairs minister what would the particular next steps be
1: well i actually made a list of five of those perfect yeah i think the first one is to make it clear through our through continuing public statements and actions that we support taiwan's meaningful participation in organizations like the who and the that's that's relatively easy for us to do just saying that they should be there for pragmatic issues maybe you know someday even at the general assembly of the united nations if two germany's could be there i think that china and taiwan can't be
0: that's a really good point
1: i also think that we should make it clear with our statements from time to time like australia just did that any issues of differences about the issue of the future of taiwan should be resolved peacefully through dialogue and without threat or coercion. So every time China threatens Taiwan, we should make it clear that we object to that. It's just simply not following rule of law. It's not respecting the UN charter. We should make that clear. Thirdly, I think we need to enhance our military cooperation. I think it would be great if we had some interoperability with Japan, the self-defense forces of Japan. Make Make Japan a close alliance. Maybe some way down the road we can cooperate more with Taiwan, you know, like the Coast Guard or something would be a good start. So we need to start thinking outside of the box and how we can collaborate with Taiwan. Some countries have diplomatic relations with Taiwan and they do with us. So maybe we could do something in one of those places, like Haiti. Haiti needs a lot of help. And I think Taiwan and Canada could go there together. Hmm. Um, and then finally, I think it's really important to know that the United States expects like-minded countries to support Taiwan. There's a bill going through the Senate right now which is which actually talks about Canada. And I think that it's in Canada's best interest to have a reputation as being a like-minded democratic country like Japan, Australia, the Czech Republic, Lithuania, etc. And I think it's not in our rep- in our best interest to have a reputation as being a foot-dragger.
0: There you go five items five action list i hope that list is doing the rounds i hope you're shopping it around to all the officials and diplomats because that's uh that's important stuff it's important to know where we want to head
1: yeah i think it's important to reach out to the general public and do our job as educators and also to talk to policymakers and our politicians and frankly some of the politicians are more willing to listen to these message than others
0: well this is a really important message and it's it's been great to do this deep dive on taiwan on china and what it means for Canada and Canadians. Professor Scott Simon, thanks very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for doing
0: this. Bye-bye. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.